This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, June 21st. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Rob Bluey. On today's show, I speak with former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos about her new book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. We also read your letters to the editor and share a good news story. But first, we want to tell you about one of our favorite Daily Signal resources. If you are looking for an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news you care about, then you should subscribe to the Daily Signal's YouTube channel. The channel offers interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Signal's YouTube channel today. You can search for the channel on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Daily Signal. Now stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Betsy DeVos, the former Secretary of Education and author of a new book, Hostages No More. Secretary DeVos, it's great to have you back on The Daily Signal. It's great to be back, Rob. Thanks. Well, let's start with the book. Um, Obviously, this is a time when so many Americans, particularly parents, have education front and center on their mind, given what's happening in our country. Why did you decide to write it? Well, I probably wouldn't have written a book, um, but because of what happened the last two years where parents saw firsthand what was happening or in many cases wasn't happening in their children's schools and education, it's a moment that we can't let go by. The failings of the 175-year-old system have been laid bare and in a way that you know I've actually noticed for many years, but now lots more people are seeing it, and we need to harness that energy and that concern and change that into policies that empower families. So let's go back to the period in in 2020 when a lot of schools made the decision to shut down, uh, go to virtual learning, and parents were then in in many cases seeing for the first time what was being taught uh, to their That's to their right. kids. And what were some of the things you were hearing uh, while serving in office that maybe surprised you, that alarmed you, that told you that we were going to face a moment in this country where parents said, I want to be more in control? Well, first of all, the shutdowns and lockdowns that they continued for months and months and months, the kids who could least afford to be out of the classroom and not learning in person face to face were the ones that were hurt the most. And parents who could make a decision to do something different did. But this moment has really coalesced in such a way that uh, today we have the kind of energy and support around policies that will give parents and students education freedom to be able to find the right niche. We've seen lots of creativity through the last two years. We've also seen uh, schools that were intent on serving their students. You know, many of the charter schools and the private schools went right back to teaching in person, and the students did great. But it's all the kids that were locked out and kept out for so long um, that have been harmed and in many ways other than just academically. What is your advice for the parents who might be listening? What can they do? What steps practically can they do in their own lives? I'm asking this as a parent myself, two kids in public school here in Virginia. And I'd like to know, you know, just from your perspective, what steps should they take? 
Well, if they themselves want to have education freedom and have the money, the resources that are already designated for their children, you know, their children to follow their child and to be able to take them and use them in a way that's going to most enhance that child's future, they need to be contacting state legislators, contacting their governors, and putting pressure on them to say, we need to have this power now, and we have seen the failings, so it's time to turn the system, a 175-year-old system that's no longer working for too many kids, to give us the chance to actually help foster and create new opportunities, new schools, new kinds of approaches. And they can best do that by talking to their legislators, talking to their governors, and, uh, and also, importantly, at the most local level, while their kids are in school, to show up and talk at their school board meetings and make sure that there's transparency there. Or, as we've seen in some cases, they've taken the step of actually running for their school board Indeed. and maybe never <laughs> intended to be in a position to do that. What does that speak about, this, this movement among parents? Well, I think it, it's exciting to see. It's exciting to see that many parents who have realized, again, what many of us have long known to be the case. They are taking action, uh, and that's good. I mean, it was a decisive issue in the governor's race in Virginia. Um, and, and I think that the, uh, you know, the status quo and the um, opposition to really freeing up and allowing families to make these decisions have doubled down on it, and I think to their detriment. So now is really the time for everyone who has kids and wants something different for them or grandparents or neighbors and friends, now's the time to put the pressure on those who make the policies. States are where most of the education policy is made, but the federal level can also either be helpful or a hindrance. And in this case, the Biden administration on every front is a hindrance. Yes, and we're grateful for your leadership and what you did while serving as secretary to hopefully, in many cases, help states and give them an opportunity to take advantage of of things that they could do to create more choice for students. You used a term that I want to unpack for our listeners, and that was that the money should follow the student. What do you mean by that, and what does an ideal situation look like? Or maybe there's a model out there that uh, you found that works particularly well. Well, I I like to call it education freedom. Many people call it school choice, but I think that's rather limiting because it it speaks to buildings and um, things that we currently know, systems we currently know. Education freedom is a much broader concept. Today, we spend on average $15,000 per kid per, you know, for K-12, the K-12 years per year. Um, some places it's a lot more, some places it's less. But let's just say on average, there's $15,000 there annually for a child's education. Instead of sending that money to a building or a system, I like to talk about metaphorically attaching it to that child's backpack, the thing they go to school with every day with all the stuff they need for learning that day. Attach that money to that child's backpack and let the families decide, do I want my kid my child to go to the school they're assigned to, or maybe there's a school down the street that I saw operating in the last two years in a way that I didn't really realize or understand could be. And maybe the school over there around the corner has values more aligned with my family's values. Maybe I don't like what my child has been um, subjected to in the schools in terms of curriculum. There's any reason that a family would choose to do something different 
and to, in some cases, customize that child's education. We can unleash the creativity of this nation if we empower every family in this country to do what those who have economic means and wealth already do and make a choice for their child's education. It's it's so true, and it's it's just common sense. And I think that's why you've seen people who aren't just conservatives or Republicans uh, come out and support somebody like a Glenn Youngkin because he tapped mm-hmm. into that, and I think that they recognize that this this battle over the child, and Terry McAuliffe basically said <laughs> directly that he didn't think parents had a role there. I think a lot of parents, regardless of whether their political affiliation was Republican or Democrat, said, no, I want to be in control. I want that freedom that you spoke of. Absolutely. Let me ask you, uh, you brought up the Biden administration. I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on some of the things that they are doing at the federal level that we should be concerned about. Mm-hmm. What are the, the biggest problems that you see them uh, potentially creating when it comes to limiting that freedom or other things that might be on the horizon? Well, I'm most concerned about what they are likely to do on Title IX. Um, as you know, we did an extensive rulemaking process that put a very fair, predictable, balanced framework in place for how education institutions need to handle matters of uh, sexual misconduct and uh, and you know those related things on campuses. Uh, the Biden administration has talked about not only rolling those back and taking away the due process protections that we in- ensured would be the case and would be there, but they're also talking about re- redefining uh, biological sex to include pretty much anything you want to define it to be. And this has really devastating implications for, especially when you think about women's sports. Um, you can't say you're an advocate of Title IX and equal opportunity for education and athletics as an addendum. And, and then at the same time say you are okay with biological males competing on women's sports teams. Um, it, it, that those are just incompatible. And so this is an area I'm very, very concerned about. They've also overreached in every single other area and have taken a far leftist position on just about anything that they possibly can, including the first competitive grant program out of the box. They tried to award more points and therefore more money to schools that would adopt and take on the 1619 project curriculum. Well, we know that to be totally debunked by by many historians, and yet they were going to elevate that and direct money into those schools that would would uh, take that on. They're trying to kill the growth of charter schools. I mean, there's just any by any measure, this Department of Education under the Biden administration has taken a far left turn, and uh, and and conservatives had had best pay pay attention and raise their voices around these things. Yeah, cer- certainly we need a lot more oversight and we need a lot more pushback on on both of those fronts. Going on Title IX first, uh, I think one of the things that has surprised me is the number of feminist groups that have spoken out or even aligned themselves with conservatives who are concerned about the implications for women's sports in particular or young girls. You spoke about the implications of doing this. What does it mean practically for for a student if the Biden administration were to go down this path? And why should parents be concerned and maybe speaking up about it now? Well, uh, we've seen um, on more in more than one case um, the swimmer in uh, Pennsylvania, Leah Thomas, that has you know sort of taken over the women's swimming team there. And I, I was a swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer go- growing up, and you know I, I was a 
good swimmer, not a great swimmer, but the notion that I would have potentially compete against biological males, uh, many young women won't even go out for sports if that is what the future looks like. And I think about all these young women who today are working hard and training and, uh, you know, giving up lots of things in order to pursue a particular sport. But the notion that any, again, any biological male could come and say, I'm going to compete now on a woman's team, uh, it is it is unfair fundamentally, and it's just flat out wrong. You talked about the Biden administration uh, incentivizing schools to adopt things like the 1619 Project or some of the other elements of critical race theory. What I've heard is so often teachers are taught when they go to college in their preparation for becoming teachers to incorporate some of these ideas into their instruction. What are some of the ways that we can effectively push back on critical race theory to make sure that that's not the case in the future? Well, there's been a lot of effort to ban critical race theory. But we know that uh, where there's a will, there's a way to have it reappear under some other name or banner. I think the approach we should be taking is to demand radical transparency around curriculum and around everything that goes on in a school building. Uh, you know, parents have this right. Taxpayers have this right. We need to know what's going on, what what is being taught, and, uh, and, and how the money that's allocated is being spent. And if there's radical transparency... There will also be accountability eventually, but I think we get to full accountability when ultimately every individual who's a consumer is actually a a consumer that can make a choice, not just get assigned to a, a building based on geography. I have a question related to higher ed. We've heard in recent weeks that the Biden administration wants to pursue a, quote, student loan forgiveness approach, uh, which would... I think in many cases uh, infuriate uh, large segments of the American population who either didn't attend college or don't want to be on the hook for for someone else's uh, education. What is your approach to the issue? What is your advice to conservatives when it comes to the issue of student loans? Well, first of all, I'm pleased that it's actually come into a more common discussion because I started talking about this while in office, and there were even some on our side of the aisle who said, "Hmm, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. But it's a fundamentally wrong and bad idea because it's unfair. Two out of three Americans haven't gone to college or taken out student loans. We have lots of young Americans who have... Uh, you know, pay, faithfully paid off their student loans. We have other families who save for their children to be able to help them pay to go to college. Uh, do, just writing off and forgiving a whole bunch of uh, student debt is the wrong approach. What happens if if it's 10 or 50, 50, whatever it is, so you do it once, then what? You haven't solved anything. You're going to continue to recreate the same problem. And so uh, the questions need to be rolled back further, and we need to be looking more more uh, closely at what is the value that a student is receiving for the education that they're paying for, and what accountability does an institution have in taking in a student and taking their student loan funds? In fact, you know, it's sent, the federal government sends the money to the institution not to the student. So the institution gets it first. There is no governor on how uh, schools continue to elevate their pricing. And we've seen the growth of 
the tuition rate is is multiple times the rate of inflation over the last 20, 30 years. And that that's just wrong. I mean, the, the incentives are wrong. The inputs are wrong. And so there's every opportunity to go back and say, we need to take a look at this again. The federal government shouldn't be the only uh, – entity in the student loan business either. This all really took off and uh, and really ramped up after 2010 when student loans were federalized. Thank you for being such an articulate voice on this issue. Uh, you touched on something there, and that is the, the growth of tuition. How would, as the Biden administration puts it, forgiveness or cancellation of debt incentivize colleges and universities to increase tuition at an even higher rate in the future. Well, exactly. I mean, it doesn't solve any problem uh, for any, it, it doesn't solve any systemic or fundamental problem. The way the system is set up today is, uh, it, it, it is wrong and it is flawed and we're continuing to di- dig deeper and deeper into the problem with $1.7 trillion in student loan debt out there. Um, and the notion that this entity is under the jurisdiction of the Department of Education is also a bad, a, a bad move, a bad idea. Uh, everything about it is, is really, uh, set up for long-term problem and an ultimately failure, we need we need policymakers to take a step back and look afresh at what really needs to be done to encourage students to pursue the pathways that are right for them. And may, maybe it's not a four-year college or university. There are many other viable options, but we don't hear about those because it is so geared toward this four-year. Um, you know, this this four year experience. But again, I think the covid experience has awakened more students to question what the value is of taking on student debt and what they're you know, what they're actually pursuing. And I hope that that will continue to raise more, you know, raise more questions in their minds and policymakers to take a more serious look at how to actually um, get the incentives and the structure right. Yeah, I think I think you're right on that. I just did a fascinating interview with a couple of people affiliated with the Pioneer Institute in Massachusetts who have a new book out on vocational technical education and why that should be an alternative for a lot of students rather than directing everybody to a four-year college degree. So multitude of options, certainly, for Exactly. For Millions of jobs that are going unfilled today that don't require a four-year college degree, but some kind of uh, training or education beyond 12th grade. So let's let's uh, make sure students know about these. Let's support that their ability to pursue those. And let's think differently about what higher education really should be and look like. A couple of final questions for you. Reflecting back on your time serving as Secretary of Education, what is the greatest accomplishment? What was the one thing that stands out in your mind that you're pleased to uh, have done in that role? Well, everything we did was focused on doing what's right for students, and that uh, that started with talking about empowering families and students to make the choice for their right fit for education. I think we elevated that conversation in really important ways, and um, and now with the the you know the reality of COVID, we're at a point where I think policies are going to change and follow to support that notion. I'm also very um, proud of the policy making. The, the rulemaking we did on the higher ed level around Title IX, around uh, opening up more options and more pathways for students to pursue. 
and uh, and again, keeping the focus on doing the right thing for students, not systems and not buildings. That's right. Well. I think two points on that. Number one, the groundwork that you were able to lay, I think, did have an impact. Uh, so when when the situation with COVID did come around, parents hopefully felt that they had had an advocate in the the Trump administration under your watch. And secondly, I know it doesn't always generate the headlines, but the rulemaking process is an arduous, uh, complicated, and it takes a long time. So uh, it's it's certainly something that I think we as conservatives need to probably do a better job of at the administrative level in, in the federal government uh, to make sure that we're advancing our principles that we believe in. Yes. And I, I mean, one of the things that we tried to do in every aspect to the fullest extent possible was to shrink the role of the department and to um, actually acknowledge that education is a state issue and uh, respect federalism. Um, that's a very different kind of posture and footprint than my predecessors took and my successors have taken. And so all that to say, uh, elections matter because ideas and policy matters. Last question for you. I imagine there were things that you didn't get done. Uh, I know that we're having a conversation right now among House Republicans and others in Washington who are putting together an agenda for what looks like in 2023, maybe what the next administration uh, should pursue when it comes to education reform. Do you have a big ticket item or a couple of things that you would recommend uh, to others who are working on these issues? Yes, absolutely. The tax credit scholarship program that we advocated during the time in office, which would establish a mechanism, a vehicle through the Department of Treasury to support, to come alongside uh, what states are doing to give families education freedom and provide some rocket fuel to that. Uh, that is a re very real and viable um, step that this next Congress can take and really support families and kids and their futures. Great. Well, Secretary DeVos, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, we'll make sure to include a link to your book, Hostages No More, in the show notes and the transcript of this interview. Thank you so much for writing it and sharing your story with us. Well, thanks so much, Rob. Appreciate it. We're all guilty of it, spending too much time on the Internet watching silly videos. But it's the 21st century, and maybe it's time for a change. At the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, you'll find videos that both entertain and educate, including virtual events featuring the biggest names in American politics, original explainers and documentaries, and heritage experts diving deep on topics like election integrity, China, and other threats to our democracy, all brought to you by the nation's most broadly supported Public Policy Research Institute. Start watching now at heritage.org slash YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Doug, who's up first? In response to Jim Carafano's article, Don't Draft Our Daughters or Anyone Else, Paul Perone from Springfield, Virginia writes, James Carafano is on target. As a retired Army officer, combat veteran, and father of three daughters and six granddaughters, I am appalled at the drive to draft women. But Mr. Carafano needs to look beyond this administration, as what we think of as conservative organizations like the American Legion have been in support of this nonsense for several years. And in response to Doug's article, after an assassination attempt, protesters come to Kavanaugh's home, Christine Reiner from Punta Gorda, Florida, writes, To see such a heavy police presence outside of Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home is a disturbing commentary on how we now live in America. There was a time when angry mobs would have been scooped up by police and carried off to a precinct, particularly after an assassination attempt on the justice's life. 
The same women who claim that abortion empowers women have traumatized and intimidated his two young daughters as well as Brett Kavanaugh's wife. Your letter could be featured on next week's show, so send an email to letters at dailysignal.com. At the Heritage Foundation, we believe voting is a sacred duty. It's how people express what course they want our nation to take. Given the importance of the ballot box, it's necessary to have a transparent and fraud-free system that can be trusted. This is why Heritage created the Election Integrity Scorecard. The scorecard compares the laws and regulations for elections state to state and ranks them on their security and transparency. Check out the Election Integrity Scorecard at heritage.org slash election scorecard. Bernadette, I believe you have a good news story to share with us today. Over to you. Thanks, Doug. In honor of Father's Day yesterday, I wanted to share about how one NFL player gave back to an 11-year-old girl. Audrey Soap, a middle schooler from Texas, needed a date to her father's daughter dance. She tells live Kelly and Ryan show. Actually, it was my mom's idea because uh, she knew how much I wanted to go, but I couldn't because my dad and my grandfather had passed away. Philadelphia Eagles player Anthony Harris stepped up to step in as Audrey's date for the night. Anthony Harris tells us about when he first heard of Audrey's story. Um, yeah, I think immediately I just felt uh, just emotion um, and just trying to imagine uh, the hurt and pain that she could be possibly going through. Um, so I knew I really wanted to just take a second and think about if I could be able to make it because we were uh, in the race for the playoffs and I didn't want to put her in a position where she couldn't have anybody take her. So um, I felt honored. And then once I was able to go, um, I told her that I could and I was excited. Anthony and Audrey had a blast that night, and Audrey was very grateful for Anthony's company. Anthony encouraged us to never underestimate the power of our ability to help someone in need. Sometimes strangers um, giving or just words of encouragement go a long way, especially when it's coming from someone unexpected. Happy belated Father's Day to all fathers. Bernadette, thank you so much for sharing that story. We are going to leave it there for today, but you can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network, and all of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It really means a lot to us, and it helps spread the word to other listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great Tuesday and a great rest of your week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.